the woods outside of Houston are uninviting. Just beyond the city limit to the east, woody vines as thick as rope choke the shortleaf pine trees that stretch toward the sky. Beds of green palmetto plants reach up from the soggy earth, and a thick thorny bramble keeps unwanted visitors out. You might think the still woods are empty, but it's here, in this haunting landscape of tangled trees, where coyotes stalk their prey at dawn and armadillos emerge from their burrows at night. It's also here, in this very spot I'm standing, where a young couple was found murdered in the winter of 1981. For 40 years, they were nameless. No one could identify them. A group of forensic anthropologists called the pair Romeo and Juliet, young lovers together in life and death. Texas police labeled them Jane Doe 701 and John Doe 703, anonymous murder victims among hundreds of others in the early 80s in Houston. I never expected my reporting to take me to these woods. But my investigation into this couple's death would expose an even greater mystery, one of the most shocking I'd ever covered. I'm Christina Corbin, and you're listening to What About Holly? Where's Holly Marie? What happened to Holly? What about Holly? She was a very sweet girl. It was a brutal act. What they did was just horrible. It led to this tragedy. We have yet to solve this particular crime. I hope she's out there. We do hope that Holly is alive. This story begins on January 6th, 1981, just north of these woods, at a two-story brick house where Carrie Dwayne Cox lived with his family. Carrie was 20 years old and a sophomore at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. He played baseball and was working part-time to help pay for school. On that day, Carrie was home for Christmas break. The family lived along Wallaceville Road on the outskirts of Houston, an area known as North Shore. There were only three homes along that stretch of Wallaceville Road back then, and they were surrounded by dense woods. The area was secluded, it was quiet, and Carrie's four German shepherds patrolled the family's two-acre property, barking at the occasional pack of teenagers who threw beer cans from their car late at night. Not too much of anything was happening in those parts at the time, aside from hayrides organized by the local church, before Wallaceville Road turned from gravel to pavement. You could say it was idyllic country living, simple and carefree, innocent, until one day it wasn't. My name is Carrie Cox, and I am from, we'll just say Houston, Texas. I spoke with Carrie about the afternoon of January 6th, 1981 in impressive detail. Carrie's manner of speaking is casual, almost matter of fact, but his story is chilling. It was a pretty cold day on January 6th, but uh, sunshine as well, so it was really pleasant. I just remember coming home from work with a friend. We were gonna play pool, ping pong. We had a game room above our garage. 
we were walking up after we parked and around the corner came one of our German shepherds. Heidi actually came up to us and we were not sure what was in her mouth at the time. Carrie approached Heidi, the matriarch of the pack. Carrie thought maybe she'd captured a squirrel or a rabbit. When he got closer, Heidi dropped her catch at Carrie's feet. It was a human arm from just above the elbow all the way down to the fingers. Like someone had been swimming. They were swimming for a long time, kind of wrinkled, really pale. It's like nothing I had ever encountered, that's for sure. Carrie and his parents called the police. Everyone stood in the driveway, totally dazed. When Heidi got up close to us, we could see both looked at each other like, you gotta be kidding me. Your world stops for a minute and you're like, what is happening? This is something you see on, you know, TV maybe, but never in your own yard. Wouldn't even have any idea who might do something so heinous. The next day, law enforcement and the media descended upon Wallaceville Road. All three major news stations were there. And when I say major in 81, you know, that was ABC, NBC, CBS. Um, and they were all there. Helicopters flying over. It was a crazy day. Over the next several days, officers with the Harris County Sheriff's Office combed the woods in every direction looking for a victim. They brought out prisoners from a local jail to do a grid search. They dragged a bayou near the Cox family home, but found nothing. And then, something pretty remarkable happened. Heidi, the German shepherd, led Mrs. Cox, Carrie's mother, across Wallaceville Road, where the dogs never roamed. There was nothing on that side of Wallaceville Road but woods, surrounded by barbed wire and a phone tower. The only way in was by way of a dirt road, which was closed off by a white swinging gate. It was there, 100 feet into the woods, where the bodies of two people were discovered at 10.45 in the morning on January 12, 1981. The crime was brutal. The medical examiner's notes read as follows. Subject one, white female, approximately 15 to 18 years of age, five foot six inches tall, with long reddish brown hair tied in a ponytail, probably died from strangulation. Subject two, white male, approximately 18 to 24 years of age, five foot six to five foot six and a half inches tall, wavy brown hair, approximately six inches in length, and prominent light brown eyebrows. The subject died from a fractured skull. Cecil Wingo, an investigator with the medical examiner's office, wrote that both victims died at the same time. Wingo believed it to be the 3rd or 4th of January, 1981, though that time frame would later be called into question. Maybe they'd been killed in December, possibly even November. The bodies were badly damaged by animals, so it was impossible to say. So who were they? Police hadn't a clue. 
sketches of the pair's reconstructed faces were drawn up and released to the media. Surely someone would recognize them. But no one did. My name is Robert Minshew. I go by Bobby. I'm a lieutenant with the Harris County Sheriff's Office, and I'm over the homicide unit. I met Lieutenant Bobby Minshew inside a nondescript conference room at the Harris County Sheriff's Office, a two-story brick building from the 1940s. A former Marine with an extensive military background, Minshew joined the police force in 1992, and cold cases eventually became his thing. All right, so let's talk about cold cases. How many do you have currently right now? I think the official count on our roster is about 624. How far do these cases go back? We have a couple case files from like 69, 68. The vast majority of our cases are the 80s and forward. We have so many unsolved cases in Harris County. Myself and my partner, Sergeant Eric Clegg, worked cold case for five or six years and we were very successful. We filed a lot of cases. We put a lot of bad guys in prison. We worked on a lot of serial killers. We worked on a lot of cases that had been worked to death, I mean, just mm -hmm. exhaustively. Mm -hmm. And then we found that one magical witness or that one magical piece of evidence. You know, I've knocked on doors and told people I'm with the cold case unit and you just see them take a deep breath and say, I've been waiting on you. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. We then turned our attention to the murders in the woods along Wallaceville Road. I was anxious for more details. Minshu explained to me that without a positive ID on the couple, it was impossible for investigators back then to determine who murdered them and why. Remember, this crime occurred in 1981. There were no cell phones for police to track, no text messages or emails to read, no surveillance cameras outside homes or businesses to analyze. And the field of forensics was still in its infancy. For 40 years, they were Jane and John Doe. Yeah, they're actually listed on our, on our cold case spreadsheet as male Doe, female Doe. They're unidentified remains. They were ruled homicides. We just didn't know who they were. And the original investigator at the scene, you know, really didn't have a lot to go on. So she couldn't go talk to their family, friends, or workplace, or anything like that, which is where we would generally start with a a body found in the woods. Who is this person? Who was around them? You know, now we go into cell phones and social media and Google Maps, and we have all these tools that back then, the only information you could get was knocking on the door or leaving a message on an old micro cassette answering machine and hope somebody would call you back. They had none of that. They just had the two dead bodies and didn't know who they were. So there was no homicide investigation. There was a scene investigation. You could call it a crime scene, forensic type investigation, mm -hmm. but there was no interviews or witnesses or evidence really to process that we had DNA. We just didn't know how to use it. As Minshu was speaking, I sat there thinking about the case file from 81 that had been digitized and saved on a computer just down the hallway. The initial police response, the statements from the Cox family, the crime scene photos, the autopsy report. I wanted to see it, but I knew that wasn't likely to happen. In my 15 years covering crime, rarely were such files shared with reporters. And if the case was unsolved, so technically still an open investigation, you could pretty much forget about it. But I pressed for it anyway, and to my surprise, I walked out of the Harris County Sheriff's Office that day with the entire case file in hand. 
Uh, generally, we don't release them for open cases. This case needs all the help it can get. Stay with me. We'll be back after this short break. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'd spend the next several days reading over every detail and looking at images of the crime scene and the remains. The details of which are too graphic to speak of. I'd never seen anything like it before. I will say a bloody towel and a pair of green gym shorts, waist 25 inches, were found next to the bodies. Lieutenant Minshew offered up a theory. Based on my experience, they were probably dumped there. It probably happened in a house. We have a lot of cases out of our unsolved cases, mm-hmm. and in our solved cases where bodies are dumped in the woods, you mm-hmm. know, or dumped in water. Or in the movies, you know, you may have a bad guy march people out into the woods at gunpoint and mm. say, do you have any last words? That's mm-hmm. not, most murders come from a, not a planned type of thing, you know. I was intrigued by Minchu's theory. I wanted to see the woods for myself. So after some coaxing on my part, we drove out there. I'm not too far from I-10, which is called the East Freeway here in Houston, and it, it goes all the way you know, from California to, to Florida, I-10 does. Uh, we're also near Highway 90, which is more of a rural highway that's expanded a lot over the years. We're in the 13500 block of Wallaceville Road. This is on the uh, kind of east-southeast part of Harris County. This is a map that the original crime scene investigator sketched out. Actually, I, it may have been the patrol deputy, which is rare. They did a great job on this. But it appears the house where the arm was found is on the side of the road that we're on now, the north side. Mm-hmm. They reference a communication tower, which is still here, but it's probably been upgraded to a cell phone tower from the old radio telephone towers that we used to have. Um, and now in 1981, this must have been heavily wooded area, right? Yeah, yeah. This this four lane with a turning lane wouldn't have been here. It would have been two lanes with you know with a line and mm-hmm. rural properties. Lieutenant Minchu and I parked in what is now a pediatric urgent care. We walked across Wallaceville Road to the south side and made our way around a white swinging gate. I could see the phone tower in the distance. We walked up a gravel service road, and then Minshew motioned to the left with his hand. There, in front of us, were the woods, and we made our way in. So, as you can see, it's overgrown with brush trees, pine trees, palmetto, which is a lowland kind of swampy plant the palmettos are oak trees yopon trees which are an invasive species here just really thick brush the actual woods didn't look that different compared to the original crime scene photos the area there with the heavy palmettos is about the right distance straight ahead yeah yeah, this area is a little lower than, than from the roadway area, so there could have been some standing water, like a muddy area. Anywhere these palmettos grow like this, uh, there's always a lot of water. So it could have been like very swampy? Yeah, depending on the rainfall around the time of the murders. It, 
bodies were found in January, so it would have been kind of like this, cold and wet, and the ground probably would have been wet. During the summertime, this place would probably have water moccasins and copperheads and other snakes in these swampy areas like this. Mm -hmm. And animals, a lot of animals out here. Yeah, this would have had coyotes, bobcats, raccoons, possums, uh, just all kinds of varmints and predators. See this fresh dirt? Yeah. That's from an armadillo digging a hole, and when they claw, it throws the fresh dirt. So he's either in there or somewhere close. That's an armadillo hole? Yeah. They're pretty common here in Texas. I don't think I've ever seen one. How oh. different than Manhattan? <laughs> a lot different. Minshew and I walked to the exact location where the bodies were found, a clearing in the woods where a bed of palmetto plants basked in the sunlight streaming in through the trees. He would have been 50 feet in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, according to these steps from the driveway, we're standing on 51 feet to the first body, 74 feet to the second body, and they were kind of in a line right next to each other. So she was about 20 feet from him, give or take? Probably would have been a ideal spot to dump a body in 1981. They may have not been found for years and years or ever if it hadn't been for the dog finding the body part and bringing it to the house right here across the street. After visiting the crime scene, I wondered what had happened to the couple once the medical examiner finished his work. I learned that they were laid to rest in 1981 at the Harris County Cemetery in a potter's field, a place for the burial of unknown or unclaimed people. There were no headstones, no significant marker for which to place flowers, no family or friends to visit. They at one time belonged to someone, and it was hard to comprehend the anonymity of it all. It wasn't until 2011, when the remains were exhumed, Harris County anthropologists received grant money from the National Institute of Justice to exhume 25 bodies in an attempt to collect DNA and identify the victims. The couple was among those chosen for the project. My name is Lisa Olson, and I'm an investigative reporter based in Houston, Texas. I met Lisa Olson on a chilly February morning inside an old library in the Heights neighborhood of Houston. Lisa is a reporter's reporter, endlessly curious, fearless, and tenacious in getting at the truth. Her illustrious career spans decades. Lisa covered the Green River Killer, who terrorized Seattle in the 80s and 90s. She covered the infamous Texas Killing Fields, a stretch of highway between Houston and Galveston, where the bodies of more than 30 women were found. And in 2011, she was the only reporter who covered the exhumation of the young couple found in the woods off Wallaceville Road in 81. Lisa knew the case backward and forward. I knew that all of the people they were exhuming were young people. And so together we went through and we picked out a certain number of cases that we were going to feature. Mm -hmm. And out of those cases, this one really stood out. And I thought, well, it deserves a story of its own. It's very unusual to find two people who disappear at the same time who both go unidentified. And, you know, this was a couple, definitely young, well, assumed to be a couple. They could have been brother and sister, too. But there was something kind of in their gut that was telling the forensic anthropologist that this was probably a couple. What can you say about the brutality of the way in which this couple died? 
it appeared you know, that the woman had been strangled and then the man had been beaten to death. So the thought was perhaps he had been forced to witness her being attacked or had tried to defend her and then been beaten to death. It was clear he'd been beaten savagely. And at one point I remember the nickname came up of Romeo and Juliet, you know, a couple tied together in death and potentially who were also in love. There were compelling details about, you know, the way they'd been found too. As you've said, they had been in the woods for a while. Even in the winter in Houston, it can be plenty warm. And so the fact that they were already skeletal didn't mean that they had necessarily been there a really long time. But certainly they thought that they'd been there a couple of weeks. The woman seemed so very young, but she had her hair swept back in this ponytail. They were able to look at her fingernails and saw that she bit her nails. There was a possibility she was as young as 15. She seemed just like a woman just beginning her life as a woman. And that was very compelling to me. And the young man was not that much older. You know, he had the kind of classic early 80s kind of mullet hairdo. What isn't common among people who are homeless, they have beautiful teeth. You know, they had they were the people who looked like they had grown up going to the dentist, having some sort of at least ability to have medical care. It was just a big mystery. It was a big question mark. How can these two people be there in the woods, go missing at the same time, be young people, and no one have reported them missing? Authorities trying to identify the remains also enlisted the help of another agency. I'm John Bischoff, and I'm the vice president of the Missing Children Division at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, also known as NCMEC. So in November of 2011, the Harris County Sheriff's Office and the Harris County Institute of Forensic Science reached out to us here at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, requesting our assistance in identifying two victims. We did not intake the male victim, believed to be between the ages of 20 and 30 years old, pretty much surpassing Nickmick's age threshold of what we would end up working on, right? Because we're obviously a child-serving organization. But the female who was found with the male was believed to be between the ages of 17 and 25. Now, that covers part of the age bracket that we as an organization are extremely concerned about. We created a age progression, a facial reconstruction of the victim, pretty much a skull recreation. We end up receiving a digital CT scan, a high-res CT scan of the skull. And we pull that into our computers here at the National Center. And our forensic artists put skin layers and skin depth markers on the, the skull. And we turn it into something that can be shared with the public with as much scientific input as we have from forensic anthropologists. And we pull all that information in and make it so it can be viewed by the public. Despite a high-tech reconstruction of the female victim's face, there were still no leads on this couple's identity. No family to claim them as theirs. And then, four decades after the murders, a shocking break no one saw coming. I said, do you have a family member that might have been missing for a really long time from your family? And she said, oh my God, yes. Yes, my brother, Harold Dean Klaus Jr. And then almost immediately she said, 
well, what about his wife and his little girl? And then I said, well, wait, he had a baby? That's next on What About Holly? The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to What About Holly ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.